Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready. Veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, episode 297, 297. Thursday, June the 1st, 2023. Mark, are you there and where are you? I am. I'm, I'm um, back in Newcastle, Brendan. Um, I uh, had a little journey down to Melbourne to the uh, AVBC um, annual general meeting. Um, it, a wonderful, a wonderful time down there. We, um, the, the, the AVBC has a you know, it's it's technical annual. Now, what is you need to define ah, what that group is, Mark, good, for our overseas good, listeners. Good call. I take for granted people understand the acronyms of Australia. Um, the Australian Veterinary Boards Council. So each state in Australia, and uh, the, it's the Australasian Veterinary Boards Council. Each state in Australia and New Zealand have a veterinary board, and they uh, send a delegate to a council. That council serves each of the boards by accrediting universities in Australia as accredited uh, veterinary trainers, veterinary educationalists. They uh, recognise specialists and they um, and they provide the Australasian veterinary exam. So uh, people who have not gone to an accredited university can sit that exam and then practice in Australia so um, and they do a whole bunch of other things as well and they had a workshop on the Thursday before the meeting um, and uh, and they have a sustainable practice committee which um, is doing some outstanding work with um, with uh, transition to practice uh, registration of veterinary nurses and um, and uh, continuing education and complaints uh, all areas that we as veterinarians in Australia struggle with and um, and it's so good to see the regulators get together um, from all around the country and and uh, turn their collective experience and wisdom on these rather significant problems for our profession ah, and if they have you on the council it cannot go wrong mark um, you'd be steering it in the right direction i'm sure they're, they're all they're, i don't know what you're like when you go i know you are on a number of um uh, committees and and organizations brendan but i've i often go to these things and feel a little bit intimidated it's like going to the upav conference and standing next to you and seeing all our good mates at um at UPAV, they're all so smart. They know so much. We've it's, got um, them fooled, haven't we, Mark? Imposter uh, syndrome, one thousand percent. I'm running on. <laughs> yes. yes, we've got them fooled. Uh, we spent many decades um, <laughs> impressing people um, when they should not feel impressed by us. But um, let it keep occurring mark (laughs) we'll we'll work on it we'll keep it going (laughs) yes well let's jump into things um hello to all our new listeners or and or subscribers and thank you to our sponsors our three main sponsors are specialized animal nutrition um, the suppliers of oxbow australia products oxbow products in australia jen and the team 
Chemical Essentials, a wonderful F10 product, which I guzzle down every day, Mark, to keep my COVID away. And also Doug and the team from Microchips Australia. So many thanks to them. But we also have a couple of people who support us via Patreon, patreon.com. Head over to vetgurus.com and see the links. And I think we need some more people going to our store, Mark. Um, been a bit quiet, our store, our Etsy store, um, E-T-S-Y, and look for vetgurus, all one word, V-E-T-G-U-R-U-S. And look at the amazing merchandise there. I think it's about time we sold a few stickers, Mark. Um, what more could um, you feel but happy if you support us by buying a sticker and um, only spending a few dollars? Pop it on your laptop, pop it on your phone, pop it wherever you want and um, be proud. Supporter. I think I'm going from memory here, but I think um, we do have a Does It Fart Yes, we yes. do. One of our famous. I'm going to go and order one right after this podcast. Yes, good. You did. You should. You you will. You will do, and you're going to do it. Um, Yes, does it fart? One of our famous episodes, probably episode in the first ten or something, Mark. That that, um, sort of put us on the map there. Um, So I'm just trying to find that now as we talk. Yes, here we go. Episode five, um, it was titled Do Rabbits Fart, I think. Um, but we got into um, which we expanded our horizons. Yes, we did, and um, talked about a whole host of animals that do or don't fart and why they may or may not fart. But that is not this episode, Mark. Um, this episode is I've got a bit of a d- disturbing little um article here, Mark, about wet pet food. Oh, yes, it is. And dry pet food, Mark. Wet pet food is far worse from the climate for the climate than dry pet food. It's more environmentally damaging. There and the reason being I found this interesting, Mark, um, it's because it has a greater percentage of meat in it, Mark, um, overall. Um, I thought it would be that it's because of the actual production process and causes more greenhouse gases and that. But the research published in the Journal of Scientific Reports, and we'll have a link to it in this week's episode on our website, found that a 10-kilo dog eating about 500 calories a day of dry food would result in 828 kilograms of carbon dioxide emissions a year, Mark. 828 kilograms a year but 6,541 a year when fed a wet diet. And the interesting thing about that, Brendan, was that it's not the protein, it's not the animal content providing the protein source, it's the fact that the calories in the diet is the the source of the calories and because uh, in the dry foods 90% of the calories come from in wet diets, they come from animal ingredients. Yep, um, and that. you will love their their, their recommendations, Mark. Yes, um, I do. One of one of your one of your little um, little um, soap boxes. I soap stand boxes. On. Yes, the scientists suggested pet food could be made greener by using alternative proteins such as insects, Mark. The CO2 emissions from insect yes, production yes, could be yes. ten times lower than for regular meat, and I I. I don't think the day will be too far in the future, Mark, that when we meet up um, that you've got a can of um, crickets or something that you're opening for lunch. <laughs> I don't think it'll be long at all. I think it'll be – and I think the interesting thing about that, and we'll talk about it another time, but um, it's a 
it's 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 a psychological thing more than a, any real thing, isn't it? Um, they they um, I was listening to a, a futurologist. Is that what they call them? Futurist who said that um, that uh, it'll all be in vats that um, they'll be making meat that's indistinguishable from animal sourced meat from um, the, the main limiting factor will be the amount of stainless steel they can get to make ah. vats to produce the meat. Um, so it won't be long and we will, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be, if I had a big investments in uh, um, cattle farms, I'd be just quietly shifting out of that over the next few years. That's Investing into stainless steel or, or insects, yes. <laughs> With the yes. caveat that we're not financial advisors in any way, shape or form. <laughs> The future is coming, and it always reminds me of that. The one of the cult science fiction films, Mark Soylent Green, yes, uh, where humans were ground up and fed back to humans. Um, and, and with this, um, that was sort of the main spoiler. Sorry about that. Um, for the film, yes. So there we go, Mark. That's my uh, little little. Um, what's the takeaway there? And I, I tend not to recommend canned foods for my dog or cat clients, Mark, um, because I think it's more expensive too, isn't it, feeding the, the canned foods than the dry foods because you're buying a can of 80% can of plus water, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. It's a very expensive way to supply the calories and protein. Um, so what have you got, Mark? My my story is a little trip down memory lane for me because um, – uh, I went and saw northern elephant seals on the coast of California about 10 years ago, um, spent an afternoon sitting amongst the giant animals that are about the size of a Volkswagen. I um, mean, this report looks at um, sleeping. So elephant seals and sleeping, two of my favourite topics. Um, what they discovered, Brennan, was that on the long trips out to sea, the seals snooze for less than 20 minutes at a time and altogether each 24 hours they're probably only exercising two hours of uh, somnolence um, each day and they do this for months as they swim offshore hunting fish and uh, cephalopods squids and octopuses and um and yeah and and really interestingly they they made this watertight uh, skin, watertight head helmet for um, some of the elephant seals, and they recorded uh, EEGs combined with uh, um, depth analysis, so they could map where the how deep the elephant seal was and what their EEG was doing. So they discovered that they went into uh, um, uh, slow eye movement sleep and they would orient them they'd sort of glide down and then rise up and point their nose at the surface of the ocean 60 to 100 meters down and for 10 minutes they'd just do the sem sleep and then they would uh, go a little bit deeper into rem sleep and but when they uh when they went into rem sleep they lost orientation and so they would gently spiral and plummet you know several hundred meters down to the bottom for 10 minutes um, and then they would wake up and swim back up the surface. They would only spend a minute or two at the surface because that's where they're most vulnerable to predators, uh, orcas and sharks and things. Um, so they tend to spend most of their time, you know, down at that 60-metre level when they're asleep or when they're swimming, but they 
sink much further when they're in, in sleep. So, yeah, it's amazing. And unlike many other marine mammals, they don't do the half a brain thing. So many uh, pinnipeds and uh, cetaceans will sleep with half their brain and keep the other half on alert so they can respond to predators or whatever. But these guys sleep with their whole head. I can identify with that. And My um, goodness, this story reminds me of you, Mark. Um, it is. It's an animal that only sleeps for a couple of hours a day, and um, but when they do, they shut off their brain completely because um, you're a bit of a restless soul with your sleeping habits. Um, I've certainly witnessed that many times. And Well, um, the other thing that's good about it, though, Brennan, and I can look forward to this, is that when they come to the beach, they sleep all day they sleep <laughs> more than you know they do the reproductive stuff and then have a giant snooze because they're safe on the beach so and I, the I expressions look... on these seals on the beach mark in the photo reminds me very much of you <laughs> um, i must admit yes I'm, I'm proud excellent story mark northern elephant seals sleep at just two hours a day is the, is the um, tagline for this from science news which we'll have a link to so there we go. There are two main topics, uh, news items, and they're completely unrelated. They're Mark, and they're completely unrelated to our main topic this week, which is a birdie one, Mark, um, which you'll be you'll be happy with. And it's one we're going to talk about some feather problems or feather issues in pet birds. And we have had a few previous episodes discussing feathers and birdie issues with feathers. And one of them that I found, Mark, was that. We, we went into feather picking on its own as a, we could cover several episodes with feather picking back in episode 192 in June 2021, Mark. So I thought it's about time we did another little chat on feathers and birds. And I'm going to fire a few questions at you, Mark, but I thought we'd, we'd just um, summarise a few different aspects of birds losing feathers mark so the signs of of birds um, being brought to the clinic with with lack of feathers that are yes. somehow missing yep. and also if we have a little chat about birds that come into the clinic with damaged feathers mark um, and so we'll just distinguish between those two so let's jump into the loss of feathers mark so do you want to talk a little bit about that I do indeed, Brent. And then the good, it's, a, it's an excellent distinction to make because we definitely see birds who come in, you know, feather, feather damage because the feathers are um, cutaneous structures. They're on the outside. That is something that people see most obviously. And so it's one of the things that, uh, one of the most common things that we would be presented birds with at the veterinary hospital. And it is a good thing to divide them up in ways so that you can sort of uh, start to draw conclusions about their, the potential causes and how you might treat them. And one of the ways to do that is to say that, um, oh, these feathers are feathers that have uh, uh, are absent or falling out, um, or um, as we've talked about before, they're uh, damaged feathers and um, and the, the, the base of the feather or the structure within the follicle still remains. So it is a very good distinction to make, Brendan. And I think it's one of several ways of approaching feather problems in birds, Mark, isn't it? It's, it's dividing it into, is this just a loss of feathers, the feathers aren't there, and then working through the process of why they're not there or 
or deciding, no, they're damaged feathers, so some potentially are lost, but they're from damage, um, and then then um, getting and a I, differential diagnostic yeah. list that way, Mark. So loss of feathers. Um, yes. What are the what? Well, what what do they look like when they come in? Bald? Not bald. bald. What they areas? Bald. They look bright pink, and um, and depending on the area, they 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 um, you know, they might even have a YouTube career. Um, there's a lot of birds on YouTube that have this sort of affliction. I I think um, the key thing to say here is that uh, the most common reason for birds that have an extensive area that's so obvious that. Uh, 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 client will pick it up um, is uh, some of the viral diseases. But one of the things that's important to pay attention to is that most pet birds have apterous regions of their body, aterolous regions, regions that don't have feathers. And so it wouldn't be uncommon, even though the bird looks like it's covered in feathers, has a continuous blanket of feathers over it. It is regularly the case that they have sections of skin which have no tracts of feathers mm. on them. So if the bird gets wet or it holds itself in an unusual position, the client might come in and go, oh, my goodness, I looked under the wing and there's a big featherless area. Um, and it's always important to, uh, to identify whether that might be a normal structure, whether the skin is normal, whether it's symmetric, whether, um, whether you can see... Uh, an absence of feather follicles in that region, yep. um, then it might, in fact, be a completely normal thing. Um, so that's the first thing. There are some spots on the birds that uh, won't have feathers, so it's good to identify the normal Great spot. point, Mark, and it's, well, we say the same sort of thing with some of the mammals, but the classic one that I thought of straight away is guinea pigs, Mark, with that area behind the ears bilaterally where they have um, no fur there. And clients may occasionally, we occasionally see a client bringing the guinea pig in saying exactly the same, it's lost fur yeah, around that yeah. area. So is there, now you mentioned that, that the key there in determining if you're unsure whether it is just a natural lack of feathers is one, the symmetry of, of that potential thing. Um, any other particular um, standouts as far as species go that you might say, look, this particular species of bird has this big patch of lack of feathers um, and just skin? Um, there is one. There is one that uh, we commonly see, and that will be because many people get a bird as a recently hand-reared, particularly parrots will be a recently hand-reared bird, um, and the bird is adjusting to a new place so it's not eating normally, then all of a sudden they'll have a big meal and its crop will fill up to its maximum and it will poke out between the feathers and it will, the crop frequently, in parrots, the crop will have no feathers on it. So um, people will frequently come in with their bird that they haven't, um, they've only just recently acquired. They've had a, a health exam as they always would when they first acquire a bird um, and it's a few weeks later and they come in and go, oh my goodness, there's this giant lump on the bottom of the bird's neck yep. and that can well, very often is uh, the overfull crop of a bird that's found something it really likes to eat a lot of and has gone to town and filled its crop up. Yes. You always have to be a bit subtle, don't you, when you're ensign. Um, if if a consult is is just for something like that, which is a you know a normal sort of occurrence, and you're sort of um, not trying to um, 
let the client feel embarrassed about the fact oh, you've course. brought the animal in for something that um, and you know, oh, I think the, tr- the trick, yeah, and the trick there, I think, is also provide a provide a um, you know complete full physical examination as well um, to, to we give always them do value and, for money. <laughs> and it's always those cases. The skin might be normal. The feather absence of feathers might be normal, but it might be. Uh, protuberant because there's some crop disease so it's always wise to do a crop wash and talk to them about uh, emptying and uh, and watching what happens to the crop so they become familiar with it as a normal structure yes so the ones the loss of feathers that are abnormal mark let's talk about that why and how do we sort of work these ones up what's your approach well if there's a complete absence of feathers um then we start to look, as you mentioned at the start of our discussion, the distribution. So um, the classic one that all our listeners will probably be aware of is, uh, you know, that sulphur-crested cockatoo that comes in with an absence of a crest, um, uh, but the, the feather follicles don't look horribly inflamed or anything. Um, and, of course, they have an absence of powder down as well. Um, so they uh, beacon feather disease virus, damaging the follicle and interfering with the growth cycle um, and preventing new feathers from growing. And then gradually as time goes on uh, and that disease progresses, um, the feathers will fall out and, um, and new feathers will fail to grow normally and the birds will eventually uh, uh, be bald all over. So um, having a look at the distribution early in this, the uh, uh, the process and looking for those different forms of feathers, um, the absence of the the feathers that don't give the the contour feathers give the bird their shape and have that classic feather appearance. Um, the down feathers are much less well organised and um, making sure that the bird does have those or the consequent powder down is important for the initial diagnosis diagnostic steps in diseases like beacon feather disease virus infection yep so just to expand on that a tiny bit mark um the the birds that have lack or no powder down um when they normally have powder down is that that a sort of warning sign with these ones as well Um, yes exactly a good good question brendan the powder down feathers are uh rapidly turned over so the contour feathers might last on a bird uh, maybe even a year some of those contour feathers whereas the powder down feathers are shed uh are preened are broken up into the powder down um every few days and so the rapid turnover of those feathers once they stop growing becomes apparent much more quickly um, a contour feather that stops regrowing might be six or 12 months before it becomes apparent that it's not regrowing so so yeah um uh, the powder down and of course the classic appearance of those pbfd cockatoos is the shiny beak associated with the absence of a normal crest um, alerts us to the absence of powder down and the feather dystrophy the failure of those feathers to grow normally um, and that sets us off on the search for the uh, for the uh, serology that suggests uh, we've got a feathered uh, beacon feather disease virus, or maybe even DNA work to identify the presence of the virus. Yes. So getting on to the workup, Mark, um, you spoke, you've, you've just touched on viral testing. Um, 
are there any other sort of basic approach to these ones you do um, before you do that send off that sample look i think there's an important you know the the our our physical examination our history um uh i i think the next step is um to look at uh blood work and i yes. mention i want to mention another diagnostic step that i usually pursue further down the track and it it's a little bit of a vexed question in these cases and that's a skin biopsy now in obviously uh, a skin bite if you've got uh, an absence of uh, feather issues uh, if that's the issue that you're dealing with then a biopsy would definitely be indicated but i have to say in my experience that um the majority of biopsies come back uh, with non-specific um, uh, um, you know inflammatory changes in the follicles and it's often uh, difficult to narrow down the the cause just as we would in other species, if there's a, an early phase, just the very first time the clients have noticed a problem with the feathers, a biopsy is an excellent idea. But once it's been ticking over with any degree of chronicity, it can be difficult to, um, to elicit a cause, a, yeah. a, a primary etiology, and you're often just dealing with those chronic changes, the, the folliculitis and uh, maybe some dermatitis, or sometimes... Um, uh, no signs, no significant signs at all. Mm, okay, great interest in the point about the biopsy, Mark, uh, or lack of lack of um, value, I suppose, um, from from doing that skin biopsy. Biopsy. How long? I know this is a bit of a um, how long's a piece of string. How long does it typically take to get back the results from the viral testing with these cases? I think that the, these days these tests come back relatively quickly. Um, uh, the, um, there's several pathology labs now that will provide um, both DNA and serology, um, and in the in the most important cases, it's uh, it's obviously important, say for the. Um, beacon feather disease it's important to establish the presence of the virus but also the body's response to it some of these viruses that are very common might test positive for dna but they still might not necessarily be the cause of the bird's problem so um, uh, but these days i would say that we get results back um, within a week definitely so it, it's relatively quick turnaround excellent and how do we treat them, Mark? <laughs> well, the, the difficult thing, of course, with the viral cases is that um, that uh, they're you can only treat them palliatively. For many of the birds that are, you know, wild, so take for example rainbow lorikeets, um, you would probably think about euthanizing a significant number of those birds. Rainbow lorikeets have been the only birds uh, that I'm aware of that have had um, cases test positive, both to serology and, and uh, DNA, and the birds have recovered. Um, I, I suppose it's a little bit unsurprising given the robust nature of the birds, um, but for other species, um, it's very difficult, particularly for wild birds that you're thinking might um, contaminate an area with virus to consider yep. keeping them alive. So euthanasia is always an important point to consider. For many pet birds, though, 
Um, if they are not likely to infect co uh, cohabitant birds in in whatever house or cage they're in, if they uh, have the symptoms, obviously they can't thermoregulate very well, so they need thermal support. They will sometimes have injuries to the damaged beak, um, and so they might need analgesia. They might need altered diets um, that are easier to prehend because of pain associated with damage to their beak. Um, if these can be addressed in a caring and appropriate manner, they can survive for um, some of these birds for several years with excellent quality of life before uh, those quality of life issues yep. end up being a reason for them not to be with us anymore. And that's sometimes a bit of a involved discussion, isn't it, with the client getting across those those points to them there. But um, I think most people tend to understand it, similar to you know a bit of an analogy with the with the reptile viruses as well. The whole process of you know is this an individual animal? Is it part of a huge collection? And if it is, then things are a tad different as far as our approach if we get a positive for one of these viruses in them. Um, I was talking to some medicos and it's an interesting thing how as veterinarians we first of all brag about dealing with many more different species than they have to worry about Um, but we also uh, run the gamut of um, you know flock medicine or herd medicine or population medicine all the way back to individual animal medicine and particularly the medicos I were talking to, they really focus, they never, very rarely, unless they're, well... Epidemiologists or that's something. That's right. Yeah. They, they basically are dealing all the time with individual animal medicine. Um, so, yeah, um, as vets, we do have to put on those hats at different times. Is this... Uh, is this uh, um, a good thing for the flock we have to behave as an epidemiologist or in other cases is this a good thing for the individual yep any other loss of feather conditions in birds you'd like to touch on there are there's one i quickly want to touch on um, because we have really focused on those viral things because they are common it's good to talk a lot about the common things but um we do see uh, some hormonal diseases particularly uh, the the potential for thyroid disease to start begin to cause problems with uh, feather issues uh, in birds like galahs and um, of course uh, the uh, sex steroids um, definitely play a role in the molt cycle and so there is uh, definitely a number of birds that uh, will end up with faulty molting cycles that uh, lose feathers and then they aren't replaced normally. So it's not by any stretch of the imagination solely, the absence of feathers is not solely due to um, to viral diseases. They're common but there are other causes and uh, veterinarians should be on the lookout for those and that's why it's useful to draw that blood and look for indicators of those potential humoral problems. Yep. Great points, Mark. Now, damaged feathers, let's jump into that. Yes. Damaged (laughs) feathers. And look, I think the key thing here is um, doing good examination, having a good, long, hard look at the bird um, and making sure you get some uh, clues about the nature of the damage. Um, first of all, having a look at the distribution, we all know that um, 
it's very difficult for a bird to damage feathers on the top of its head, for example. And so if the feathers are damaged and it's uh, um, in a region that the bird can't do that damage itself, then maybe it's a social problem. Maybe uh, stress has caused a, co- a cohabitant bird to um, to pick on that bird and cause some problems. Um, so looking at the distribution first, then looking at the nature of the damage. Um, is it overpruning? Are the phyloplumes, the little uh, veins of feathers as they radiate out from the main rachis, the main uh, stem, are they on some of the feathers, are they disorganised? Has the bird been playing with them excessively? Um, and then other feathers, it's gotten to the point where that damage to the arrangement of the feathers has led to the destruction of the feathers. Have the feathers been chewed off? This is something I see a lot with uh, stressed macaws, that um, they will preen initially, but then they'll begin to focus on a particular area and they will... Uh, with their massive beaks, they'll um, damage the the uh, the, the main uh, rachis, the main um, uh, uh, structure at the centre of the feather, and um, you'll end up with this damaged, frayed, uh, broken feather as uh, the bird causes increased damage to to those often the wing feathers or the tail feathers. Yep. Work up on these ones, Mark. Well, I think that the more uh, the more often I'm spending a lot of time on these feather, the ones where the feathers are still present but damaged, I'm really getting the clients to fill out um, questionnaires about behaviour. I really want to um, uh, narrow down the potential behavioural issues that uh, uh, that can be there. So um, there might be things. Uh, very often um, just a, a simple lack of stimulation will lead the bird to the point where they're preening excessively. Some birds, particularly the ones that are humanised, will have separation anxiety um, and their stress, uh, their preening, their um, uh, damage to the feathers will be the result of, um, of being left alone. We talked about the hormones potentially affecting the feather cycle, but um, hormones in birds can also lead to a degree of sexual frustration um, and birds that aren't afforded the opportunity to produce eggs or mate um, can develop uh, stereotypies of a variety of sorts and one of those may be to cause problems with the feathers. Um, so I'm always working through all those behave, potential behavioural things initially by getting a thorough, thorough, um, you know, questionnaire detail, four or five pages, I think, our yes. uh, behavioural questionnaire is. It gets back to the basics with unusual pets, isn't it, Mark? History, history, history is so important with them. And um, it's amazing how much you can glean just from that History, especially if you have appropriate questions um, fired at the owner about the condition that they're brought in for. Um, so ha- feather picking, Mark, will point our listeners to that particular episode I mentioned, episode 192. Um, 
other causes of the damaged feathers, Mark, apart from self-trauma, feather picking? Well, I think that, you know, the obvious one to quickly discuss is the destruction of feathers caused by um, other birds in the social group. And we'll all have had uh, clients who have small flocks of uh, chickens and uh, particularly in stressful situations, in those stressful social situations, uh, the chickens, their nature is to, you know, explore things by pecking at them. And if there's a stressful social situation or if there's maybe a, um, a, um, a, a lesion, um, something that draws the bird's attention to uh, those sorts of things, then, yep, the, the, those uh, cohabitant birds will definitely start to have a go at um, at uh, the feathers and even sometimes worse subsequently, the skin and and uh, they may cause serious wounds. So um, understanding the social structure of any of the birds that we're dealing with and trying to, once again, get back to the history. Is this bird um, in with a bunch of the same species? Is it in with another one? It's a very common thing uh, with people who breed a number of species of columbiforms, the pigeons, um, the male pigeons, uh, uh, many species will pick the feathers off the heads of the hens. Same thing with many of the quails. Um, and so understanding the social structure, um, sometimes these behaviours can be ameliorated by increasing the number of the birds in the flock so that the, uh, the, 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 more, the male birds that are trying to affect uh, reproductive behaviour are not focusing on a single bird and that gives the bird that might have some uh, feather damage on the top of its head um, uh, a chance to not be pecked on. So um, understanding the, the organisation, the, the group in how the birds are housed and understanding a little bit about the behaviour of the species might give you clues about uh, other birds in the group causing that feather damage. Yes. Well... As usual, Mark, you're very insightful with your thorough you're always summary of feather loss and damaged feathers in birds. Um, gee, that's, I, I think I've got about 10 more questions I wanted to ask you about this, so, but we'll cover that in future We can do part two. I think um, we could do part two, but we'll keep our listeners hanging, Mark, and I think we will get out of here and next week thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time you